0: Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. I used to live in a land that was without an ocean. Uh, I had waves of grain all around, but no waves of water all around. And so, on the few occasions when I was growing up or through high school or college, on those few occasions that I got to see the ocean, it was a really, really big deal. Uh, And I was always in awe of the ocean's power and size and, and then mystery. I mean, you just... Can't help but look at it and think, man, this is bigger, way bigger than me. And then I, I would go back home to my landlocked life and, and I would tell my friends how awesome the ocean was, and, and we would all share stories of our brief encounters with it. But eventually, over time, that awe would fade, uh, the stories would get told less and less frequently. the the mystery and the wonder of it all would go away until the next opportunity came and I was able to go see the ocean again and then I would stand up in front of it in, in even greater awe and even greater amazement than before. And I find that for so many Christians, our awe of Jesus sometimes fluctuates in the same way. We have moments where we're amazed at his greatness and then because of various factors, Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's suffering. Our awe of Him diminishes. We think of Him less. We think of Him smaller. And it is shockingly easy for us to forget the greatness, the power, the majesty of Jesus. I think that's part of the reason why Mark wrote this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's writing to Christians who in the first century were suffering persecution and all kinds of hardship, and it's possible they were saying, you know what, my my problems are a lot bigger than Jesus. I've signed on for this relationship, signed on for this life, and here's what it's gotten me so far. I've lost my house, I've lost my stability, I've lost my freedom, I've lost everything. Is this really worth it? Problems seem large. Jesus seems small, So when Mark begins to write this book, he does so with a focus on the majesty, the grandeur of Jesus from the very beginning. He wants you to see how great Jesus is. So think about what we've seen so far in our study of the Gospel of Mark. It opens up with prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then he takes us immediately to Jesus' baptism, and the triune God is there. I don't know that it gets much bigger than that. From there, he enters into a cosmic battle against Satan. And then he announces the, the arrival of the kingdom of God, and the arrival of the kingdom is in the person of Jesus. And from there, he puts his call on the lives of men who leave everything behind to follow him. And then if you were here last week, you heard pre- uh, Pete preach a beautiful sermon about the all-surpassing authority of Jesus over all Every aspect of creation. So Mark has a distinct agenda. He wants you as the reader to see Jesus great, powerful, uh, awesome, especially in the face of every effect of sin, every instance of suffering. He wants us to see Jesus as great and awesome. So what difference would it make for you today if you were to leave this room with a fresh vision Of the greatness of Jesus. What difference would it make for you if you came in here limping, but you walk out with this experience perhaps for the first time or perhaps for another time to be reminded of how great Jesus is and how small everything else is, of how incredible His love is for you, how powerful His grace is? Would that do anything for you today? Would that change anything about your life? It's my goal today to push us in that direction with this story, that we would walk out of here, walk away from this story with this unbelievable sense of peace and renewed strength and confidence in our great Jesus. We're going to read a story this morning about an encounter Jesus has with a man who truly is deathly ill. And in that story, Jesus' greatness is on grand display and I want to show you two aspects of the greatness of Jesus from this story. So follow along with me as I read. We're in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. Here's what Mark tells us A man with leprosy came to him. Now, the hymn is Jesus. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I want to show you in this brief encounter two aspects of the greatness of Jesus. If we catch a vision of these, it's going to blow your socks off. It's going to be a good day for you. All right, two aspects of the greatness of Jesus. How is his greatness on display here? First of all, this story teaches us that Jesus is greater than the ills of this world. Verses 40 through 42, Jesus is greater than the ills of this world. As is the case with all of Mark's storytelling, there's a lot going on in just a little bit of space here. In verse 40, we're introduced to this man with leprosy. He has some skin condition. Some scholars and researchers would say it, it may not have been leprosy specifically. Nevertheless, it, it was a serious matter. Uh, and the diagnosis doesn't have to be exact for the situation to be critical. Uh, this man has some sort of skin disease. It's, it's advancing. It's troubling. And here's what is perhaps most troubling. It isolates him socially, and religiously. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, it gives instructions for people who come down with contagious skin diseases, and it's, it's not a very happy piece of Scripture. No one's life verse comes from Leviticus 13. Uh, this man, uh, because of his skin condition, he has to live in isolation, literal isolation, out of the population proper and among other people who are sick like him he's instructed on how to dress leviticus 13 says he's to dress in rags he's to leave his hair unkept he is to wear a piece of fabric over the lower part of his face it gives the man instructions for social interactions Uh, when you the sick man come upon a healthy person you are to announce your sickness by yelling unclean unclean And then, not just is the man isolated socially, he's also isolated in terms of the practice of his faith. Because of his sickness, he's not permitted to be in the temple or at the synagogue. He has to stay away. He's ceremonially unclean. You see, the the view of things here was it wasn't just a skin sickness, it was a sin sickness. And the way Mark tells this story, he doesn't say the man is sick because of his sin, but Jesus interacts with the man's sickness as if it were sin, so to speak. And so this man is not allowed to be around his family. He, he lives in an isolated com- community. Uh, he is kept out from worship. Uh, and the, the only way he's able to be reintegrated is if he is somehow healed or he just eventually dies, which for diseases like these were, was often the case. So, this man sees Jesus. And somehow, Mark doesn't tell us how, but somehow this man knows of Jesus. Perhaps he's heard the stories of the miracle worker. Or perhaps he has seen from afar off what Jesus has done. Either way, somehow he has some concrete knowledge of who Jesus is. So when he encounters Jesus, he breaks every social norm. He does not announce his uncleanliness. He does not steer wide away from Jesus. He goes immediately up to Jesus. And it's a poignant scene. It's not hard to imagine how incredible a moment this is. Here is this man dressed in rags, face half covered with fabric, wild crazy hair. And in desperation, he is on his knees begging for healing. Jesus stands over him. As the events unfold, the greatness of Jesus uh, comes into play from a few different areas. First of all, Jesus shows his greatness through his healing power. Look at what the man said to Jesus in verse 40. man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. What the sick man says to Jesus here is, is as important as what he does not say. He does not question Jesus' ability to heal him. He knows that Jesus possesses the power to make him whole, to make him well. Somehow in his hearing or his seeing, he's gained this knowledge. So his question is not one of Jesus' power, just one of Jesus' willingness. There's great faith in this man who knows the power of Jesus to heal even though all the rest of society has cast him out and put him to the side, he knows what what Jesus is capable of doing in this moment. Now, that's not because he has some sort of keen insight into Jesus as Messiah. He just knows the power of Jesus, and that leads him to break all the rules and to get himself in front of the healer. All too often, we forget the unmatched power of Jesus over every manifestation of brokenness in this world. You and I would do well to learn from this man and to carry with us a vision of Jesus as all-powerful, a healing God. You know, when when we come to stories of healing like this, sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge for us to make sense of them, especially if you are dealing with sickness, There's a part of us that wants to follow in the man's steps and say, yeah, Jesus, heal me. Then there's another side of that coin that says, oh, maybe this is just a metaphor for sin, and and then ultimate healing comes after your funeral one day. But I think there's a balance to be struck here. If you're sick, brother and sister, you ought to pray for healing. And you ought to pray specifically that this sickness would be taken from you. There is not an ounce of sin or shame in that prayer or spiritual immaturity. Jesus, heal me, is the right prayer. And Jesus, use this sickness to sanctify me and glorify your name. And you know what? One of these days, our sicknesses will put a stop to our hearts and we're going to wake up more alive than we've ever been before. In a place without sickness, without tears, without co without HMOs, without all that. We live with this vision of eternity. We, we're, our life is just a whisper on this planet. So we pray for healing. We believe in the power of Jesus, and we believe that power is greater even uh, to to work majesty and glory in instances where the disease uh, runs its course. Christ is still to be glorified and trusted and loved, and he's still powerful and beautiful in all of that. Jesus' greatness is seen in his power to heal this man. It's seen in another way in this episode. Jesus' greatness is seen by his righteous anger. Look at verse 41. Now verse 41, I'm reading out of the same translation that that's, our pew Bibles are the same translation as this. And so if you look at verse 41, what I read, what our pew Bibles say is that Jesus was filled with compassion. Now, your Bible might have a different word there, especially if you're reading out of an NIV Bible that was published In the last few years. It doesn't say filled with compassion. It says he was indignant. Jesus was angry in this moment. Now which is right? There's scholarly explanations as to why it's translated one way versus the other. I think the answer to which one is right is both. All right. They give us this nuanced approach to how Jesus interacts with this man uh it, jesus is certainly filled with compassion we see that in that he heals the man but it's right also to say that jesus is indignant jesus is angry if he's angry what is it that jesus is angry about it could be he's angry at the man jesus has just told his disciples hey let's go from town to town this is the reason i came he's on this mission to go preach the the kingdom of god uh and so this man jumps in his way and, and throws jesus off of his routine so there's Is that possible? It's possible Jesus is mad about that and that this whole story should be read with with Jesus, you know, with a stink eye and, you know, not too happy with this guy. I don't think that's the most likely scenario, though. I think what Jesus is angry about here and what seems to fit best is he's angry at the suffering of this man in his isolation and the suffering of this man in his sickness. And, And so what does Jesus do with that anger He sees the man's suffering. Jesus is angry at his condition, and so he touches the man and he heals him. Have you ever looked at the suffering in the world and wondered how does Jesus feel about it? Well, he detests it. He's angered by it. In John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, Jesus is twice described as angry, at the impact of death on his people. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is angry when children are kept away from him. In John chapter 2, Jesus sees religious professionals cheating God's people out of their money. Jesus makes a whip. He turns over their tables and he chases them out of the temple complex with that whip. Our portraits of Jesus as effeminate caucasian petting a baby sheep do not do full justice to his anger at injustice in this world psalm 23 tells us he is the shepherd who has a rod and a staff you know what the shepherd's staff is for that's for caring for the sheep guiding the sheep directing the sheep you know what the shepherd's rod is for it is for busting heads of every enemy that comes against his sheep In this instance, it is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It is Jesus enraged at the schemes of the enemy and the impact of sin on the lives of the people that he loves. He is not indifferent to it, not okay with it. He is enraged by it, and he acts against it. Jesus has a righteous anger against all the impact of sin and injustice in the world around us. Now, we wrongly assume at times that Jesus is indifferent. We might think, well, if Jesus really cared about these things, he'd fix the stuff. But the problem is, we want Jesus to fix problems like we want the plumber to fix our pipes. The plumber fixes the thing and then leaves. We just want Jesus to fix the thing. We don't want to love him Follow him, serve him. Jesus, just make my life more comfortable. That's all we say to him. But he's not merely a fixer. He's a king. And the way he uses his royal position is to utterly destroy the power of sin and injustice and brokenness and death through his own death and resurrection. There's a shelf life to all of this sin and suffering junk. The day is coming when he'll put an end to all of that decay. And until that day, he has a church that ought to be angry about the things our Savior is angry about. We ought to be bothered by the schemes of Satan unfolding in the lives of people. We ought to be angry at injustice in all of its manifestations on this planet. We get angry about The wrong things, brothers and sisters, we've got to be angry about the Jesus things and then act in the power of Jesus to bring justice to a world filled with injustice. That's how great Jesus is. He gets angry at the mess and he fixes it. Another glimpse of his greatness in this story is what I would call his scandalous love. Verse 41, Jesus is filled with compassion slash uh, anger and what does he do he touches the man now i have avoided physical touch for things as little as a a, a runny nose <laughs> and you have too but jesus reaches out and touches this man who has lived in isolation from clean people for so long see not only does the sick man break the rules jesus breaks the rules The thinking at the time was to touch this sick man would be to take on yourself his ceremonial uncleanness. According to the purity laws, this was a taboo action. Jesus never should have touched the man. But Jesus shows that the law of love triumphs ceremony every time. When love is required, ceremony is left behind. It's easy for Christians to read this story and, and we take the, the sick man and we associate him with some societal outcast around us. We, we, we like to have these associations. Sick man in the Bible, oh, here in my culture, it's this group or this person is representative of this man. But when we do that with this story, we're actually forgetting how unacceptable our own sin was. We forget how scandalous it was for Jesus to show us grace. We'll classify other people as really bad sinners and ourselves as acceptable sinners, and that's just not the case. There's no reason any of us should be saved. There's no reason Jesus should endure the humiliation and brutality of the cross. The only reason he does is because of his unfathomable love for sick people like me and you. And if Jesus loved sinners in this way, surely His church ought to also follow in His steps. But the church has failed sometimes, haven't we? We have not been Jesus to people on the outsides of society, people wrecked by sin, people broken in this world. Probably because we've been afraid of being contaminated ourselves. Probably because we're we're afraid any act of love towards this person might be misunderstood as affirmation of their sinful choices. But Jesus teaches us that love is not put off by sin, nor does love affirm sin. We ought to be emboldened by Jesus' example. That love is not some philosophical proposition or a theological stance. Love is action or it is not love. This is how you know Christ's love for you. He died on the cross. Not because he just showed up and said, I love you. But because he did what was required for your salvation. We ought to follow in his steps then. And if you think touching a leper is scandalous... Just wait until the holy, sinless Son of God dies on the cross in your place. Jesus touches the man. Jesus heals the man. Mark's careful in his account of things to tell us that the the sickness left the man immediately. He doesn't want us thinking that this was a gradual healing. It was immediate and it was miraculous. Jesus is willing to heal this man because he's bent towards the broken. He delights to exalt the humble. It's a beautiful miracle, an incredible sign of what his love for these people are like and what his love for us people are like. He's greater than the ills of this world because he has the power to heal. He's got the anger to fight, and he loves you enough to lift you out of it. You ought to see yourself in the place of the leper in this story. And Jesus Christ coming to you in love and grace and power to lift you, to heal you. There's a second aspect of the greatness of Jesus in this story. He's greater than the ills of this world. Second, Jesus is greater than the misconceptions of this world. You can come up with a better word than misconception. So feel free to leave it blank and fill it in later the misconceptions of this world. Verses 43 through 45, here's what I mean. In this back half of this brief episode, everyone gets Jesus wrong. Wrong assumptions are made all around. And Jesus is better, he is greater than the misconceptions of the people in this story. There's two groups who misunderstand Jesus completely, In these last few verses, these are highlighted when our story takes a bit of a strange turn. Look at verses 43 and 44 with me again. Jesus has healed the man. And then look at what Jesus does in verse 43. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. The first group that misunderstands Jesus in this story is the general population. And that's the reason why Jesus has told this man to keep quiet about it. Why would Jesus want him to keep quiet? Well, this is where we're introduced fully for the first time to a concept known as the Messianic secret. Maybe you've heard about this before. Jesus, in multiple places in his ministry, tries to keep people quiet about who he is and what he is doing. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But there's a reason behind uh, Jesus wanting this man in particular to be quiet. There was a common expectation among these first century people, that the Messiah would come, yes, and that the Messiah would be a political revolutionary. So the general population here, they're looking for a Messiah who will kick Roman tail, liberate Israel, bring her to prominence once again on the world scene, military prominence, financial prominence, A spiritual leader, yes, but more than anything, a military king who's going to set God's people free. And there's truth in some of that. Jesus absolutely is that kind of Messiah to a certain degree. But that's not precisely the kind of Messiah he is. You see, the problem is that most of the people had failed to understand the full role of the Messiah. They failed to grasp uh, the expectations in the prophetic writings And understand the kind of Messiah Jesus would be. Not just a Messiah who reigns, but a Messiah who would suffer for the sins of His people to set them free once and for all. A Messiah who has His eyes on the globe, not just on a tiny corner of the Mediterranean world. He's a Messiah that has salvation in His sights. And so Jesus commands this man to be quiet. Because if He goes and tells His story, what's going to happen is people are going going to begin to chase after Jesus either as this wrong portrayal of the Messiah or just merely as a miracle worker. And he's neither one of those. The miracles are signs that point to a greater truth, a greater reality of who he is. And if this messianic fervor gets stirred up, Rome could act against Jesus long before his appointed time at the cross. That's the reason for the Messianic secret. People don't understand the kind of Messiah Jesus is. If there's this fervor behind him, it's gonna mess things up. This guy's got to keep quiet. Jesus is still misunderstood as a Messiah today. Even though we have the full account, the full record of who he is, some people relate to Jesus just as a good moral teacher. Some will say, well, Jesus just loves people he doesn't judge and so jesus is the one who affirms their every choice others will say he's he's a prophet yeah but he's no god but the reality is this the identity of jesus is not a diy project you and i do not get to decide who jesus is to me jesus is that's it If, if you're investigating the claims of christianity you're trying to understand better who he is This is where we start, and this is where we finish. That's what God's Word tells us about Jesus himself. We've got to set our frameworks to the side and just come before Scripture and let these words speak to us about the person of Jesus. There's another group that gets Jesus wrong in this story. It's not just the general population. It's also the religious leaders, the priests of his day. I want you to look again at what Jesus says to the the healed man in verse 44. He says, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing. And what's the motivation? Why does Jesus want this man to do it? Look at the end of verse 44. He gives us the answer. As a testimony to them. So it's a testimony. This man's healing is a testimony to the religious leaders, to the priests. Don't tell anyone, but tell the priest. This is a testimony to them. In what way is it a testimony to the priests? Well, Leviticus 13 instructs the community how to treat people with these contagious skin diseases. Leviticus 14 instructs the community how to reintegrate these people back into society once they've been cleared of their sickness. So there's this whole method laid out whereby a person would go to the priest at the priest's house to be examined. And it happens over a a long period of time. There's multiple examinations to make sure that the sickness is totally gone. And then, after that, there are sacrifices that are to be made. But it's not until the priest recognizes that the person is clean physically that the person can then begin to become clean spiritually. And so, Jesus wants the man to go to the priest to go through the examination and to offer the sacrifices he's supposed to offer because it's going to be a testimony to the priest. If the priests examine the man and establish that healing has indeed taken place and and they accept the sacrifice for his cleansing, but then they fail to recognize the power and the person who made the man clean, then they bring God's judgment on themselves. God has done something new, and if the religious leaders neglect this sign or attribute it to evil, then this testimony stands against them. The general population gets Jesus wrong. The religious leaders, many of them, not everyone, but many of them get Jesus wrong. Jesus is far greater than the masses assume him to be or conclude him to be. What does the healed man do in our story? Jesus heals him, gives him direct command. Don't talk to anyone. Go see the priest. He does the exact opposite. Don't see anyone. Go tell the priest. He tells everyone and he doesn't go to the priest. Does the exact opposite of what Jesus tells him to do. And so our story actually ends in a strange way. We we might be inclined because of the joy in the first few verses in the healing to assume that joy is just going to carry on through, but... I think this account takes a nosedive quick. The man makes a mistake. Now You might say, oh, he's healed. How how can he not go tell people? And I'm with you in that. But Jesus did the healing and Jesus did the commanding also. So maybe there's more of me in this leper than I thought at first. But this story goes in a very negative place. Jesus has to escape from the hordes of people who hear the man's story and then want to come see the miracle worker. They don't for a second understand Jesus to be the Messiah, and so he escapes to the wilderness only to find that that's not even a safe place either. People are tracking him down way out in the boonies as well. Now, in Pete's sermon last week, he talked about Jesus' time in the wilderness. And you remember what Jesus was doing Towards the end of that whole section, he's in the wilderness, he's alone, and he's praying. Jesus has gone to the wilderness to refresh and to rest and to pray, but now that's taken from him. He doesn't have that anymore. It's also interesting, I think, to note that at the beginning of our story, the sick man was on the outside of society and Jesus was inside and here at the end, a reversal has taken place. The healed man is back inside society, and Jesus is forced out into the wilderness. So here in Mark chapter 1 is a precursor to the cross. Jesus is going to suffer our shame. He's going to take our sin. He will go outside the city to be crucified. And he does that in order to make us holy by his blood. Jesus is greater than the misconception that he's merely a miracle worker or a moral teacher or some paltry political deliverer. He's greater than the perception that he's not who he says he is. He's greater than the tiny Jesus we ask him to be. Oh, just fix my hurt knee. He wants so much more for you. Greater than our wish list Jesus is an unbelievable Savior. So Marcus said a lot to us in this short scene. He's shown us how Jesus is greater than the ills of this world. He's greater than the misconceptions of people. You can't invent this kind of Savior. Fast forward from this moment three years. And it's the Sunday before Jesus is going to be crucified. And Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the people all around go crazy over this scene. What you might not realize, especially if you're new to the Bible, is that there's this prophecy in the Old Testament that said the Messiah would come to God's people and he'd be riding on a donkey. He's not going to ride a horse because a horse is an implement of war. In this scene, the Messiah comes riding on a donkey because he comes to give peace to people. He's on a donkey because he's humble. He's a peace giver. He's going to give life and everlasting righteousness to his people. So when the people saw Jesus on the donkey, they cheered because they thought he might be their kind of Messiah. Three years later, all the teaching, all the miracles, all the stories... Still, on Palm Sunday, the people who sang Hosanna when he came into the city did not have an idea of what kind of Messiah he truly is. But by the end of that week, they would know. On this particular Sunday, they sang Hosanna to a a Messiah they didn't understand. On the following Sunday, his tomb was empty. And the world knew finally, once and for all, the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. The Messiah who comes to lay down his life, to raise from the dead, to give life everlasting to those who hope in him and trust in him. He's the Messiah of unfathomable power and unexplainable love. He's greater than you can possibly imagine. Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior? Is your moral example? That's weak. Is he your savior? Has he rescued you from your sin? Has he lifted you from your brokenness? Has he put an unbreakable hope in your heart for the future? Has he set your life on a mission for the sake of his name and his glory? Is he using you to counteract injustice? All those things that well up righteous anger inside of us. As he saved you? He calls you today to trust him, to follow him, to let him be your savior. Christian, have you lost your awe of him? Has his greatness been dulled by challenges in your life? Well, find your strength renewed today by turning again to the Christ of your salvation. See how great he is over every sickness and every sin and every brokenness See how utterly unchallenged he is by the enemy that we give so much credit to? Do you see how this story unfolds and the grand story above it all in which Christ sets all things right once and for all? So find your strength renewed today, Christian, by turning again to the Christ of your salvation. Do not let any challenge, not any challenge, not any challenge leave you feeling that your Jesus is small. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for so great a salvation as this. One that rescues utterly and completely people who are marked by death. And that's what we see in this story. This man had no hope in himself, no ability to get free from his brokenness, but in grace you showed him his value. You threw aside ceremony and you acted in love, and that same is true for everyone you've called by name. So Father, I pray this morning for friends in here that have been dealing with all these erroneous ideas of who you are, these wrong conclusions. Maybe those conclusions have been informed by Christians who have been really crummy. But God, I I pray that for every individual in here, we would know you as we see you in your word. Jesus, let us believe the testimony of this scripture. And I pray that you would show yourself powerful, loving, saving, healing, To the person in here today who's searching, let this be a moment of salvation. Father God, would you awaken faith in their heart today? I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that as we see our Savior, great above every sickness, sorrow, suffering in this world, that Lord, we would be emboldened to follow, that we would trust in his value to us sin-sick people and the power of his salvation in our lives. And Lord, that your church would rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit, in righteous anger, not against people, but against the systems, the injustices, the brokenness that plagues the people you love. Let us act in the name of Christ, in the example of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring people to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.